For the past two weeks, we have been in a new series called Hold Fast to Jesus. This series is about keeping our attention on Him. And as I read different translations of Philippians, this phrase, hold fast, caught my eye over and over again. But the fact is that Paul uses many different phrases to convey the same truth. Throughout the letter of Philippians, he says, stand firm in one spirit. As you have always obeyed, continue to obey. Hold fast to the word of life. Press on toward the goal. Hold fast to your, in your conduct. Stand firm in the Lord. Whatever you learn, put it into practice. Over and over again, Paul is saying, keep your eye on the ball. Don't get sidetracked. Keep your focus on Jesus. And if you lose focus on him, keep coming back to him. And at each sermon in this series, we talked about how distraction is such an enemy to our spiritual lives and our walk with Christ. So we talked about different distractions that can take our attention off of Jesus. And the first one was our life circumstances. This happens all the time. We get distracted by what's going on in our life and we lose our focus on Jesus. I've got a friend who told me that this summer alone, his family got COVID, his house was infested with fleas, his refrigerator gave out, and without giving any notice, the power company in his city just left the city in which he lived. And so they lost power for weeks at a time. So there's times like that where I'm sure you've had seasons, seasons of life, where it's been really hard to focus on Jesus when your house is full of fleas, or something like that in your own life. And so we talked about how Paul, even in the midst of his difficult circumstances, keeps coming back to Jesus, keeps focusing on him, keeps his attention on him. And instead of trying to just make sure our circumstances change, we want Jesus to change the way we view our circumstances. And Paul is able to do that. The second distraction we talked about last week was uh, goals in our life that, that are Christian. They are admirable and noble goals. But sometimes we pursue detached from Jesus himself. So, for example, many of us want to be good husbands or good wives or good fathers or mothers or good grandparents or good friends. Those are all admirable Christian goals that we need to pursue, but sometimes we don't look back to the Gospels to actually see what Jesus said and did that could help us be better husbands, better wives, better parents, better friends. So if I want to be a good husband, I need to look back to Jesus, read the stories in the Gospels and see, okay, he is faithful to his bride. How can I be faithful like him? The way Paul says this is we need to have his mindset in our relationships. And today, we're talking about a third distraction, which is forgetfulness. And to show you what I mean, I want you to think back to a story you may have grown up hearing about in the Old Testament when the Israelites are slaves in Egypt. So if you start off reading in the book of Exodus, you realize that all 12 tribes of Israel are in the land of Egypt and they are enslaved. They are enslaved and they work themselves to death building storage cities for Pharaoh and his Egyptians. That's how they spend their days. They are uh, they're enslaved, they are tortured. They uh, Even at one point, Pharaoh creates a, a nationwide policy that if any male child is born to the Israelites, they're to be tossed in the Nile River, they're to be killed. So you can imagine, you can imagine how uh, desperately they cried out for God's help. And God does answer. And the story of their deliverance is full of miracles. God sends 
plagues on their slave masters. They run away in the middle of the night. They arrive at the Red Sea. They look back and Pharaoh and his army is chasing them. Then God parts the Red Sea. They file into it on dry ground. As they're doing that, the Egyptian army follows them into the Red Sea. They make it out to the other side, and then God closes the Red Sea and wipes away all of their slave masters, the entire Egyptian army. It's an absolutely incredible story. It's full of miracles. And if you read the book of Exodus, you find out that this happens... Three days later, right after they, they experience all these miracles, they can't find water. And so you read, the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we to drink? After all those miracles, after God literally tells a body of water what to do, they say, hey God, where's the water? They forget Already, within 72 hours, they don't remember what God has done for them. And if you read the story, you might be thinking, okay, have you already forgotten what God has done for you? We're less than a week away from this incredible deliverance. How could you be so forgetful, Israelites? Now, this is true for me, and I bet it's true for some people in this room. I can be as forgetful as the Israelites who forgot the parting of the Red Sea. Sometimes we just don't remember what God has done for us, what he has accomplished for us. And you might read this story and think, how could they grumble and complain? But then you think, how often do I grumble and complain? How do I forget the amazing power that God has demonstrated in my life? This is a distraction, and it is an enemy to our spiritual lives. When we forget what God has done, we lose attention, the rightful attention we should put on Jesus. So if you struggle as much as I do in this area, I want to look back at Philippians chapter 3. I want to read through that whole chapter together and see what Paul does to reframe his entire life around Jesus. Okay, so if you have a Bible, a physical one with you, you can get that out. Philippians is in the New Testament. It's the last third of your Bible. Um, if you have a, a Bible app on your phone, you can get out your phone. Just don't check email. Don't text. It's tempting. But just go straight to the Bible app and focus on that one. Okay, and if you don't have either of those, we'll put the verses on the screen. Okay, this is what Paul writes in chapter 3 of Philippians. He says, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you, and it is a safeguard for you. So what, what he's about to write is something he's already addressed, but he's going to say it a second time because he thinks it is uh, for their benefit. He says, watch out. And he, used three, he used three different labels for the same group of people. Watch out for those dogs those evildoers, and those mutilators of the flesh. Now, the third phrase he uses probably gives away who they are and what they were doing. So if you don't know much about the, the first century church, that's okay. It was full of both Jews and Gentiles. Jews are from the family of Abraham, and Gentiles are any, any people group who are not from the family of Abraham. Now, at the time, there was a big controversy. How can Gentiles put their faith in the Messiah. How is that possible? We're seeing the Holy Spirit fall on Gentiles. And so what some Jewish Christians said is, that, that's great, that's fantastic, we're excited for those Gentiles. They just need to become Jews 
in order to become Christians. And what that practically means for Gentile men is they need to be circumcised. I mean, that's what God commanded of Abraham, so shouldn't they have to do the same thing? Okay? That's what was happening in the first century church in many different churches. And Paul says, absolutely not. Under no circumstances should any male Gentile be circumcised for the sake of their salvation. That is absolutely not possible. It's not permissible. Okay? And the reason why he says that is because he thinks Jesus came to save everybody. And if you're fine as a Jewish man because you've been circumcised, well, Jesus doesn't do much good for you. And Paul says, no, no, no. Everybody needs Jesus, and we're not going to tack on the Torah. We're not going to tack on circumcision to that. We all need to be saved, and we all need to be saved by Jesus. And so Paul says, these people who are saying this are mutilators of the flesh. And he says, in reality, it is we Christians, Jews and Gentiles, who are the circumcision. We who serve God by his spirit and who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Okay, so this group is calling themselves the circumcision. We are right with God. We do what he wants us to do. And Paul says, no, 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 that's actually not true. Christians, Christians are the real circumcision. And then I love what he does. He says, but if you want to play this game where you put confidence in the flesh, I'll play that game just for a second and I'll win. Paul says this, I myself have such reasons for confidence in the flesh. If someone thinks they have reasons, I have what? More. I've got more. Let's check out Paul's resume for a second. He just listed for us, okay, seven different attributes that, is, that are true about Paul, where he says, look at how amazing my life is, okay? First of all, I was circumcised on the eighth day, just like the Torah says. My parents obeyed the law. Second, I'm not a Gentile. I'm from the people of Israel. Third, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. That's where the first king of Israel came from, his namesake, Saul. Fourth, he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. This is a Jewish way of saying I'm the cream of the crop. Okay, there's the, there's the Song of Songs, there's the Holy of Holies, and then there's me, Paul, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Okay, these are his four first qualities. And then he goes on to his resume. He says, in regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. I was in that respected class of teachers. Sixth. As for zeal, I'm so zealous about God that I persecuted the church when I thought that they were being unfaithful to God. As for righteousness based on the law, I was faultless. I followed every single letter of the law. Okay. I think what Paul is saying here is I was born in the best of circumstances, and I have demonstrated the greatness of my birth by my behavior. This is like a British woman saying, I was born in London, and I've got a picture of the queen over my fireplace, right? This is like a Texan who's like, no, 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 I wasn't born anywhere in Texas. I was born in Austin, and I've read Lonesome Dove twice, okay? <laughs> For the five people who've read that book in this room, you can appreciate that joke. It's like saying, I, I'm the realest of the real. I, am, I was born to the right people in the right time, and I have demonstrated in my life the greatness of my birth. And then Paul says this. After listing all these reasons for confidence in the flesh, this is what he says. Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth 
of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I lost all things. This is how Paul views his life. There's a before Jesus and there's an after Jesus. And there is no comparison. What comes after Jesus is now so fantastic. It puts everything like it just pales in comparison to what he knows in Jesus. Look at what he's willing to say. I consider that life before Jesus, outside of Jesus, garbage. That I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. You can even see how much he's dedicated to Jesus. I want to know Christ. Now, I want to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. This chapter is so important for everybody in this room because if you want to hold fast to Christ, you have to remember his worth. Let me say that one more time. If you want to hold fast to Christ, you have to remember his worth. You have to remember what he's done for you. And if you forget it, you will not hold fast to him. This is like the parable of the pearl of great price. You might have heard this growing up. Jesus once said, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant searching for fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, he went off and sold everything he had and bought it. Think about that story for a second. After selling everything, all he has is himself and a pearl. He's got no more bank account. He's not, he doesn't have a home anymore. He doesn't have investments. He has no belongings, no possessions. It's just him and the pearl. That's what the kingdom of God is worth. Paul had to live that out in his own life. He lost all things for Jesus. You think he's welcome among the Pharisees anymore? When he goes to the synagogues, he's persecuted. Paul lost everything to have Jesus. But Paul says there is so much more, even waiting in the future. He says, I haven't already obtained all of this that I'm talking about. I haven't arrived at my goal. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what's behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. Paul reframes his entire life in terms of before, during, and later with Jesus. Past, present, and future Paul. His past Paul was very confident. He thought he had it made. And then on the Damascus Road, he encountered Christ. And he looks back at what he thought he had and he says, I thought that was all gains. I thought that that was all addition. And now I view it as subtraction because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus right now. But guess what? It's not over there. In the future, I have so much even more to gain. From, from the resurrection of the dead to heaven, eternal life with God, this is all that Paul has in store in his future. There's past Paul, present Paul, and future Paul. And he says, if you don't think this way, you're being immature. That's what he says. All of us, then, who are mature should take such a view of things. Now, so I just want to pause and recognize that some of us may have grown up in church. We were, we were raised to, to believe 
in Jesus. And so you may not be able to think of a time before you knew Jesus. That may be difficult for you. So the question for you is not, what was life like before Jesus? The question for you is, where would I be without Jesus? Have you thought about that before? If, you've, if you were raised to believe in Jesus and you spent decades believing in him and, and focusing your entire life around him, have you ever asked, where would I be without him? What if, what if I didn't know his forgiveness? What if I hadn't heard of any of his warnings? What paths in life would I have gone down if I didn't know Jesus? Where would I be without Jesus? It's scary to think about. Where would we be without his example? Without the church helping us follow him? It's difficult to think about. But Paul has a very sorrowful warning, I think, for what a, a life without Christ leads to. He says, For as often as I have told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as the enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Okay, that's chapter 3. And I know that I've dedicated a lot of this sermon series to people who are already Christians. And so if you're watching online or you're here this morning and you don't consider yourself a Christian, I just want to take a second to talk to you directly uh, because I think this chapter is, is so crucial. I think what Paul is saying to you, if you haven't committed yourself to following Jesus, what Paul is saying is that you have everything to gain, everything to gain, by losing everything for Jesus Christ. Let me say that one more time. You have everything to gain by losing everything for Jesus Christ. You gotta ask yourself, what can you lose by following Jesus? You can lose a lot. If you take a little tour through church history, you can see how much Christians have lost by following Jesus. If you lived in the Roman Empire, you lost a lot of respect because you were insufficiently loyal to the Roman Empire if you were a Christian. You believed in this Jesus. He's the only Lord, not Caesar. If you live in China today and you become a Christian and you start following Jesus, you, you might feel insecure at all times. Who knows what's going to happen to you if you're thrown into prison? If you live in the Middle East today and you convert to Christianity, you better believe you're going to lose your family, your connections. You're on the outs if you follow Jesus. So what can you lose by following him? You can lose your comfort, your security, your job, your family, your children, your parents, your life. That's what Christians in the past 2,000 years have lost because they follow Jesus. But the next question is, what will you gain? And in this letter alone, Paul says you will gain righteousness that comes through faith you can know the power of his resurrection, the Holy Spirit by which he was raised from the dead. You will know him. 
Paul says you can attain the resurrection from the dead, which means one day when you're buried in the ground, because you know and follow Jesus, you will be raised to new life. That's what Paul says you can gain. In 1 Corinthians, Paul puts it this way. He says, no more boasting about men. He says, two Christians, in the present tense, all things are yours. Whether Paul himself or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all things are yours. Because you are of Christ and Christ is of God. This is the paradox of our faith. What will you give to follow Jesus? Well, all of your things... And what do you gain to follow Jesus? All of God's things. He has everything more to offer you. And so I think you have to ask yourself, what, what do I lose if I don't have Jesus? Or to use his own phrase, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose Jesus? Let's say you became the richest person on earth. Let's suppose you had all the fame the world has to offer. Maybe you climb the social ladder and you get to the top. You have more power than every king or queen has ever had. Where would that life end up without Christ? Paul's answer is sad but true. You'll have less than nothing. That road ends in destruction. But if you lose everything for the sake of Christ, you can gain so much more. I'm going to put a picture up on the screen of an ancient Christian named Polycarp. He lived, uh, he was born in 69 AD and died in 155 AD. He actually apprenticed under the Apostle John. So Peter, James, and John, this was a student of John. His name was Polycarp, and he was a leader in Smyrna. And persecution broke out against Christians where he ministered. And so the the crowd started to call for this Christian leader. We need to get Polycarp, and we need to end him. The authorities sent out a search party to bring Polycarp in. They showed up. The search party stormed into his residence and hauled him off uh, to the arena. The Roman proconsul at that time told him, curse Christ. And I will release you. And this is his quote. And I want you to remember this quote. Polycarp says, 86 years I have served Christ. He has never done me wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? That was an 86-year-old man. I'm sure he thought, I've lived a long life of serving Jesus. Why am I getting persecuted at the end? But even to the very end... He holds true. The proconsul gives him another way out. He says, all right, then do this, old man. Just swear by the Roman emperor, and that will be sufficient. Polycarp says, if you imagine for a moment that I would do that, then you are pretending you don't know who I am. So hear it plainly from me. I am a Christian. The proconsul says back that he's going to feed him to the wild beasts. And Polycarp says, bring them forth. I would change my mind if it went from going from the worst to the better, but you're asking me to change from the right to being in the wrong. Finally, this Roman proconsul's patience is gone, and he says, I will burn you alive. Polycarp says, you threaten fire that burns for an hour and is over, but the judgment on the ungodly is forever. Polycarp believes 
to his very end that there is nothing to gain by losing Jesus. He is willing to go through all kinds of tortures and death because he believes there is everything to gain, so much more by giving your life and even your death to Christ. We cannot forget what Jesus has done for us. Polycarp says, 86 years I've served him and he's never done me wrong. I can't give up on him now. And that's true for us. If you want to hold fast to him, if you want to keep your attention on Jesus, you've got to remember what he's worth because he is worth living for and dying for. His worth surpasses everything else you could value in life. 